You're listening to KGNU's Morning Magazine for Wednesday, August 22nd of 2023. I'm your host, Alexis Kenyon. Coming up on today's program, we hear about a new film on missing and murdered Indigenous people that is screening tomorrow at Chautauqua. After that, the future of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, also known as DACA, hangs in the balance as a Texas judge decides its lawfulness. We'll hear from DACA recipients about how they're navigating this uncertainty. Then herbalist Brigitte Mars will talk about raw food on her regular Wednesday feature, Naturally. A BBC News update and commentary from Jim Hightower at the bottom of the hour. Coming up on today's A Public Affair, KGNU's Jackie Sudley talks with the family of a schizophrenic inmate at the Boulder County Jail who was locked in solitary confinement for months on end. At 9.30, it's the Morning Sound Alternative. That's all still coming up. But first, a look at the headlines with KGNU's Jack Armstrong. The nonprofit blood donation organization Vitalant is now accepting a wider range of blood donors. Vitalant said that under new Food and Drug Administration guidelines, the eligibility of blood donors is determined without regard to gender or sexual orientation. Previous FDA guidelines required that sexually active gay and bisexual men be deferred from donating blood for three months. In a statement, Vitalant said they would continue to advance evidence-based eligibility policies that allow as many people as possible to give blood, while keeping the blood supply safe. Vitalant is in the midst of a summer blood shortage. City officials in Denver are considering a contract that would bring 200 pallet shelters to Denver for use by unhoused people. KGNU's John Kellen explains. The proposed contract with Pallet PBS comes with a $7 million price tag. The company says some 2,800 of their shelters are already in use in 85 cities around the country, including Aurora, and that they've had a positive impact. A spokesman for the mayor's office said pallet shelters would be used as transitional housing. But critics say they aren't what unhoused people want because they put them in controlled environments. The city council's finance and governance committee approved the contract unanimously yesterday. The full council is expected to vote on it in a few weeks. If it's approved, pallet shelters would arrive in Denver by November 1st. A site for a pallet community has not been named. Mayor Mike Johnston issued an emergency order last month to deal with Denver's homelessness. On Monday, City Council extended that order to September 18th, the second time it's been extended. For KGNU, I'm John Kellen. Boulder County has recorded its first death from the West Nile virus this year, bringing the number of 2023 West Nile fatalities in Colorado to five. County health officials reported the death yesterday, identifying the person only as a Longmont resident. Health officials in Larimer County yesterday also reported the first West Nile death in their region. Public Health Director Tom Gonzalez told Nine News, quote, Unfortunately, we will likely continue to see cases of West Nile virus for the next month or two. Health officials say the virus cannot be given from one human to another. Humans get the virus after being bitten by mosquitoes, which get it after biting infected birds. To protect yourself from the West Nile virus, health officials say that when going outside at dawn and dusk, the peak mosquito feeding times, dress in long pants and long sleeves. They also recommend draining any standing water in your yard. 
the Colorado Independent Ethics Commission has turned down a motion to dismiss a local complaint against Erie Mayor Justin Brooks. KGNU's Zach Thompson has more. The complaint against Mayor Justin Brooks was filed earlier this year by resident Ryan Kenward. He's accusing Brooks of using his influence to get the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Advisory Board to invest in a nonprofit led by Brooks himself. Kenward also claims that Brooks violated a corporate social responsibility code. Erie's town attorney Kendra Cardberry responded on behalf of the mayor. The motion to dismiss was included in her response. On Monday, the Independent Ethics Commissions stated that they are required to investigate the case, and a dismissal prior to an investigation is not feasible. An investigation from the Ethics Commission is pending. For KGNU, I'm Zach Thompson. Denver police have released pictures of a man believed to be involved in a fatal shooting in Five Points. The shooting happened at 3.50 a.m. on Saturday. In the released images, the suspect is wearing yellow pants. Three people were shot, two of them fatally. Images of the suspect can be found on Denver police's X page, formerly Twitter. Anyone with information on the case is asked to call Metro Denver Crime Stoppers at 720 913-7867. The Denver music venue HQ has been flooded with 10 feet of water, which could force closure of the club for up to four months. HQ is a mainstay in Denver's South Broadway cultural community, with punk, rock, and electronic music acts cycling through the venue. Club owners Scott Hapel and Peter Orr said in a press release, quote, Our entire 3,200-square-foot basement, with 10 to 12-foot-high ceilings, was completely filled with water from floor to ceiling. The flood was caused by a water break pushing against one of the venue's basement walls, which caved in Monday. Once the wall caved in, the basement was flooded with water, mud, and debris. A statement from the club asked for donations to support them through the rebuilding process which the club owners say could take up to three to four months to complete. The record high heat is forcing some Denver schools to close early this week. Fourteen Denver public schools sent students home due to high heat around lunchtime yesterday. The Denver Post is reporting that 17 principals say they'll be closing early today. Eleven Denver public schools received air conditioning over the summer, but many more still don't have it. For today's weather in Boulder, it's mostly sunny with a high of 86 degrees and a chance of thunderstorms after 5 p.m. Today's weather in Denver will be mostly sunny with a high near 94 degrees. There will be a slight chance of thunderstorms after 4 p.m. For KGNU, I'm Jack Armstrong. You're listening to The Morning Magazine on KGNU. I'm Alexis Kenyon. According to the CDC, Indigenous women and girls are murdered 10 times more than any other ethnicity in the U.S. Murder is the third leading cause of death for Indigenous women. More than four out of five Indigenous women have experienced violence, according to the National Institute of Justice report. A new film about this highly underreported and ongoing issue will screen tomorrow evening at Chautauqua Auditorium. KGNU's Kathy Partridge interviewed Emily Zinn of the Museum of Boulder, who was helping host this movie, and co-director Jordan Dressler. Dressler says he originally wanted to do something about the missing and murdered Indigenous women because it seemed like he was hearing story after story, and he wanted to find some answers. 
how I got involved with NYW was I, I had a friend who lived in Browning, Montana. And for those who don't know where Browning's at, it's very close to the Canadian border, very remote. But she worked at the library there because they have a tribal college there and it's the Blackfeet people. And then one day she just took a photo of this empty chair and she was like, I wonder where Ashley's at. And her name was Ashley Loring and she went missing. And that always haunted me. And I thought like that too, like, where is this girl? Like, I don't know who she is, but I want to know, like, I want to know where she is, you know? And it just creeps up from there. You know, you have Ashley Laurie, Jermaine Charlotte, Selena Not Afraid. So many people from mine back at my home too. Tanika Spooninter, Ashley Dewey, Rupert Brown. You know, you have so many people who this has happened to. And it's just really unfortunate. And thank you for sharing names of individuals, because when you deal with a phenomenon as large scale as the the murder and disappearance of indigenous women and other people, it's easy to just get lost in the numbers. You know, I can say, and our listeners should know, that the, the, that the rate of murder of women based on reservation indigenous women is 10 times the general public. But the other piece of this is, is that it's not just the deaths and, and the disappearances which are horrific, but it, it, it ends up being ignored by the system. Yeah, I'm fortunate enough. I was appointed by Secretary of Interior, Deb Holland. She created an initiative called the Not Invisible Act Commission, and she appointed over 40 uh, people from across the nation who serve on this commission, and we're all volunteer work. But we're helping write a report about recommendations um, to help combat this. But there's so many factors, you know, number one, lack of resources, number two, people being assigned to the cases who just really sometimes don't have the experience or really don't care. And, and number three, I think the most thing of it all is the fact that a lot of times the individuals, when they go missing, it's not taken as serious by law enforcement. They're just going back to stereotypes. Oh, she's probably drunk or, oh, she'll show up, you know, or he'll show up sometime, you know, but then it's just like these family members know deep down something's wrong. And a lot of times they'll go looking for them themselves. We heard a story from an individual who in Montana, she heard their sister went missing, their daughter went missing, and they're just trying to find her, trying to find her. And then they located the person who she was last with, and they even gave them a ride. And it turns out that was the person who helped murder her. It was just terrible of these things that they go through. But also it's like dealing with the grief and it's really hard. In your film, Who She Is, one of the pieces was a victim who it was sort of made to look as if it was her fault. Maybe she was a meth addict and she'd somehow wandered out into a field at the night with bruises on her body. And, and so they didn't even follow up in, in uh, the authorities didn't even follow up. It was, oh, she was just a meth addict. You know, that that happens quite a bit. And, and also, too, to take that into account. The Wind River Reservation, which is in Wyoming, was home to the Northern Arapaho and Eastern Shoshone, is 2.1 million acres. And on top of that, do you know, when I was last on the council, to my knowledge, there was only 16 BIA officers. 16. And that was it. Yeah. So the Bureau of Indian Affairs, officers, 16 officers working a 2.1 million landmass. So there's so many issues that go into it. Absolutely. I'd like to give, as as Jordan Dresser has done, give the women a chance to speak by sharing a clip from the film, Who She Is. 
which will be aired on August 24th at the Chautauqua Auditorium here in Boulder. I was my mom's little helper from an early age. I love to tease and make people laugh. My biggest passion was basketball. We were adventurous and loved to play outside. I wanted to have babies. I felt like somebody was watching me all the time. After I lost custody, I lost my self-love. It started small, but it escalated. My mom said that she didn't know the first thing to do to try to locate me. The investigation is ongoing, and so is my family's grief. Trauma has a ripple effect. My family is still digging for answers and fighting for justice. We have to battle every day for our sovereignty. We're humans. We deserve to live. I deserve to have a family. I deserve to be happy like everybody else. We have to heal. It's got to start somewhere. A clip from the film Who She Is, which will be aired on August 24th at the Chautauqua Auditorium here in Boulder. My guests this morning are Jordan Dresser, co-director of the film Who She Is, as well as a former chair of the Northern Arapaho tribe. We also have Emily Zinn, who is education director at the Boulder Museum at Tebow Center. Em- Emily Zinn, I am wanting to talk about what it has meant for you to be working on this project and what what you think is important for those of us who are non-Indigenous residents here in the Boulder Valley to be considering as we're hearing this? Well, I think my first thought in answering that question is it really matters who tells the story. And some of what Jordan was describing in the ways that Indigenous women's humanity is not respected on the level of many other people in this country and world is the fault of who has been telling Native stories for a long time. And museums are one of the most egregious institutions of that, um, of portraying two-dimensional stories and of romanticizing um, to the point of, of sexualizing sometimes Native American people and women in particular. So my hope is that this can be another moment when people stop and and pay attention to this and start engaging more deeply with the story through the perspectives of family members, of tribal members. And one of the things that is really beautiful about this film is that the readers of the women who are lost are their family members. And so they took on the persona of that person for a moment, and I think that's lovely. I'm wondering if you can say more about how you're hoping to see the film used in the world. What is your goals for it? And this might be a time to share. This is not the first time that you have made a film, you and your uh, co-director, Sophie, that has covered tough historical and current topics in the Native American community. Can you talk about your hopes for the film? Yeah, you know, I'm hoping people have always asked us, how can I become an ally? Well, number one, I just tell people, it's giving other people platforms, but also it's being a friend. It's being a friend even to and being kind to yourself um, and being able to realize that we can all make this place a safer place for everybody. I always tell people or somebody once told me that's something I always think about. It's like at the end of the day, we're just trying to walk each other home after a long, dark night. And I think that's so true, you know, across the board. And if we had that attitude 
across everywhere, we wouldn't have to walk each other safe at the at a dark night. And I think that's just such key conversations. And I'm just very grateful for um, you and also Danny and Emily for for helping this all come together. And this is my fourth film. I the first one was called What Was Ours, talked about museums. Second one was The Art of Home that talked about the power of art. And then the third one, Home from School, The Children of Carlisle. That's where our tribe brought home children from boarding schools. So very heavy topics, but very important ones that have sparked really big change within our whole system. So I'm just so grateful to be able to be the storyteller that helps do that. And uh, Emily Zinn, is there a final thought you'd like to share? I would just echo that what you said about art influencing political change, I've really noticed from these Caldera production films that Jordan's been a part of. There is genuine systems policy change in the museum field that I see as having the film What Was Ours, having had a direct impact on and the project of the boarding school repatriation from home from school, as well as the documentation of that, I think is really influencing this global effort to bring back human remains, bring back family members. Great. Well, thank you. Emily Zinn with a Boulder Museum and Jordan Dresser, co-director of the film Who She Is, screening on August 24th at Chautauqua and lifting up in a personal and very artistically moving way the issue of murdered and missing indigenous women and people. That was an excerpt from KGNU's Connections hosted by Kathy Partridge. Boulder Valley School District is offering seat credit to encourage teachers to attend Who She Is tomorrow at Chautauqua. For more information about that credit, or information about how you can get tickets, visit news.kgnu.org. The Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, or DACA, originally came about via executive order by then-President Barack Obama in 2012. DACA's future now hinges upon the pending ruling from a federal judge in Texas who previously ruled against it. KGNU's Ivan Olivas has this story. My parents left Mexico really because of, they were economic refugees. I mean, they really couldn't find enough work to support us and to thrive. And so they came here chasing the American dream. Victor Galvan, Strategic Partnerships Manager at Conservation Colorado, arrived in the United States when he was just eight months old. Galvan is one of the estimated 580,000 recipients in the United States of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA. The program was created by President Obama in 2012, and it grants work authorization and deportation protection to immigrants who arrived in the country prior to 2007 and were 15 years old or younger. Recipients must meet a long list of qualifications and reapply every two years. Now, the legality of DACA sits in front of U.S. District Court Judge Andrew Hainan, who has previously ruled against the program. A lot of our legal experts on the federal level are telling us 
prepare for the worst. And we always have. That's how we're wired. We're always expecting the worst. The question of whether or not we're going to overcome this one, I mean, it's just been one hurdle after another for this program. We've gotten through all of them. I hope we make it again. If DACA is overturned, it will affect more than half a million people in the United States, according to Forward.us. The program provides temporary work authorization and protection from deportation, but lacks a direct path to citizenship. Immigrants across the country are rallying for Congress to pass H.R. 1511, which would update a program that would provide lawful permanent resident status to qualifying long-term residents of the U.S. Melanie Laplander, director of Latinos Associated Together Informing, Networking and Outreaching, or Latino, said that if the bill passes, it would benefit more than just DACA recipients. It would update uh, the data on the registry law, making it so that anyone that has entered the United States prior to January 1st, 2016, would have an opportunity to 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 file for a residency and have a pathway to a citizenship. The, the wonderful thing um, and why we are supporting uh, the registry bill is that it includes DACA, it includes uh, the temporary or TPS uh, recipients as well. It includes um, uh, farm workers. Like I said, pretty much um, anyone that has entered prior to 2016 Creating a path for citizenship would enable a permanent solution for the ever-changing immigration landscape, something Galvan has yearned for his entire life. I already see it in my eye when I close my eyes and I imagine, like, I can hear the oath, the American oath, you know, of nationalism to the United States. Like, I can hear it already. I can hear myself saying the words. I've, I've said them to myself. I've studied for the test, like I know I could do it. In the grand scheme of life, what does citizenship even mean, right? If it means that I contribute, if it means that I pay taxes, if it means that I work day in and day out to support a family and an economy that supports all of us, I should be a citizen. The uncertainty around DACA and immigration reform keeps long-term residents from being able to make long-term life plans. El impacto de no saber dónde están parados es horrible. Gina Millan, community organizer for Colorado Organization for Latina Opportunity and Reproductive Rights, or COLOR, says it takes an awful emotional toll. She says the uncertainty can lead to anxiety, depression, and fuel trauma. That's on top of the economic issues of potentially losing one's work authorization with one judicial ruling. One way to overcome the sense of powerlessness lies within the family. Millán says it's important for immigrant parents to educate their U.S.-born children on how civic engagement and participating in elections can directly impact their families. All that's left to do is wait for Judge Hainan's decision about the fate of DACA. For KGNU, I'm Yvonne Olivas. You're listening to The Morning Magazine on KGNU. I'm Alexis Kenyon. Up next, it's Naturally with herbalist Brigitte Mars. 
Greetings. Welcome to Naturally. This is Brigitte Mars. You know, a few years ago, I came out of the closet and told people that I'm a raw foodist. And you know what? I ate pretty much only raw food for 10 years. And I wrote a book called Rawsome because people always said, gee, your food is awesome. So of course I wrote Rawsome, which is a book I still love. So here we are uh, many years later, 23 years later, and I still do eat a lot of raw foods, um, but I don't do it 100%. And most of the people who were on the raw foods thing have found eat raw foods, but it doesn't have to be a 100% thing. You know, it's not a religion or anything like that. But I want to share some of the reasons why I do think including a generous amount of raw foods is a good idea. So we know that most diseases are some type of inflammation in the body, whether it be arthritis, cystitis, bursitis, otitis, you know, you name it, all the itises, acne, eczema, mom, even cysts and tumors can be a type of inflammation. And what reduces inflammation are enzymes. Enzymes are that spark of life in living foods. And we also know that enzymes are killed when our food is heated to over 114 degrees. So you probably heard that enzymes help digestion. Yeah, a lot of people take enzymes with the meal. So by eating a generous amount of raw foods, like a salad every day, some pieces of fresh fruit, uh, you are going to be getting some enzymes. So that's a great thing. And, you know, rather than thinking, what what do you eat? Just like cabbage all the time? No, there's many ways that you can cook your food without heating, such as marinating, fermenting, turn that head of cabbage into some sauerkraut, blending, pureeing. I know many of you have probably had uh, ceviche where raw fish is soaked in lemon juice and it becomes, you know, nice and tender and digestible. Um, So there are other ways to cook food without using heat, even dehydrating, which is one of my favorite methods for making cookies and cakes and breads. So um, we also know that a lot of our vitamins are killed when they're cooked. If you think drinking a glass of orange juice every day is a key to good health, think again, my friend, because most of that orange juice is pasteurized. So they take those vitamin C rich oranges and then pasteurize them, which means they heat it to a boiling temperature, kills the vitamin C, and then they just add some cheap synthetic vitamin C back. We have been bamboozled big time, my friends. So just eat an orange or eat an apple rather than apple juice. So I do believe enzymes are important. I think it's great to get them from food. It's not too hard to say yes to salad, you know. And again, if you have a food processor, you can make salad out of purple cabbage and beets and carrots and rutabagas and things that maybe you don't usually include. Shredding things up fine and grating them makes them easier to digest. So I hope you will put a little more raw food in your agenda and enjoy it. Thanks for joining me, Brigitte Mars, on Naturally. And that's all the time we have for today's Morning Magazine. I've been your host, Alexis Kenyon. Thank you to Jackie Sudley, Jack Armstrong, Zach Thompson, our sound engineer, and John Kellen for all of your help with today's program. Stay tuned for today's A Public Affair. Jackie Sudley will be interviewing 
an individual and his family who sued Boulder after Boulder County Jail kept him in solitary confinement for months on end. That's coming up, but first we have Jim Hightower's commentary. Stay tuned. 